Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jason Pack about his book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Few people are better positioned to discuss Libya. But what Jason does in his book, and hopefully will do in this interview, is take us beyond Libya to place the tortured country at the center of what he calls the global enduring disorder and what could be the birth pains of transition to a new world order. Jason Pack, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. Let us start off with describing how you got uh, interested in the Middle East and what your journey was uh, towards writing this book. Well, thank you, James. I think my personal journey to end up studying the Middle East and then how I came to interact with Libya is really the way in which I found this concept of the global enduring disorder. So the short version of it or the potted biography is I'm from Manhattan and I was studying biology and chemistry at a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts when the 9-11 happened. And it occurred to me, wow, American foreign policy towards the Middle East is going to be one of the defining issues of the early 21st century. So I stopped my career in cancer research and I moved to Beirut. After a little bit in Beirut, I was in Morocco and Egypt, and then I had my Fulbright to Syria. While I was attempting to do a defil about Syria at Oxford, I realized I didn't want to be an academic with all the uh, peer review and publisher perish and a lot of the brokennesses in that system. I wanted to be making a difference and impacting the world and how policy was made. And it's having been in that rough and tumble, initially being recruited by a consulting company to work in Libya and living there in 2008-9 and experiencing the... uh, craziness of the Qaddafi regime, which was dissimilar to what I had imagined, and all of the bizarre economic inefficiencies, to then working in Washington, helping American businesses protect their interests in Libya in the late Qaddafi period as the number two of the US Libya Business Association, and then later as the executive director in the beginning of the Trump years, I have seen how the omelet is scrambled when it comes to a Western business wanting to get their back payments taken care of and how they lobby both the Libyans and the U.S. to get the central bank to honor their letter of credit. And I have also seen how different media optics about Libya inform how U.S. and U.K. policy is made. So my intellectual biography here is as a doer. Uh, 
Yes, I studied at Oxford and then Cambridge, where I didn't finish the doctorate on both occasions, and have read a lot of particularly history about uh, Imperial Britain. So a lot of my understanding come from the kind of William Roger Lewis and um, other key figures on imperial engagement with the Middle East. But it's the doing aspect that allows me to critique the Richard Haases and the other IR theorists like Eikenberry and the realists who have their idea about the balance of power because I lived it and there is no balance of power. So my idea of the global enduring disorder emerges from being in the rough and tumble of policy formation. Let's get in, in that sense. You've, you've uh, obviously led the way into this. Define for us what you mean with a global in, uh, enduring disorder. Sure. My view is that we are no longer in the post-Cold War world. We're in a new era, which for most people doesn't yet have a name. And why is it important to name an era? It's because the global system has certain rules. So if we look at the Cold War as being a kind of asymmetrical bipolar world order, and the post-Cold War order as being hegemonically American, working with American allies to set the terms of trade and various political and military institutions, we're now in a new era. And in trying to name that era, I came up with the global enduring disorder because I don't see us as being in a multipolar world order as many of the other theorists do. And I don't subscribe to what's called the China rising paradigm, the Pomerantian kind of view, because that view, as well as multipolarity, would make people believe that China orders the world or is seeking to order the sphere in which it grows to have more influence. I don't see that. Um, Yes, Russia contests American control and dominance in places like Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltics, the Caucasus, and the Middle East. But I would argue they don't order it. They deliberately disorder it. Then, certainly looked at from the Trump years, but I would say that this is true going forward, even into Biden and beyond, I don't see America as a reliable pole of order, protecting a free trade and institution-based international system. Rather, many American corporations, as I talk about from my personal experience in the book, as well as policymakers and the very nature of one of our two political parties, and to some extent, the other political party as well, are happy with a disordered world in which America is no longer the global policeman nor the order setter. And then if you look at international institutions like the UN, IMF, and World Bank, they're no longer fit for purpose. These are post-World War II Bretton Woods institutions that cannot handle the globalized complexity we live in now. So I see multiple poles not trying to order the world, but some of them trying to disorder it. And this situation of entropy is to me a global enduring disorder. Enduring doesn't mean that in the 22nd or 23rd century, it'll still be going on. It merely means that it has forces right now which promote the disorder to continue. It may only continue for 10 or 20 years, and then a new constellation with a new hegemon or an alliance will come into being. But for now, there are forces driving towards the continuation of this disorder. In effect, you're describing a world without global leadership. And the question is, how much of this is also a world encountering the limitations of the nation state with problems that go beyond the nation state, as well as a crisis of democracy that struggles to provide good answers and doesn't seem able to find them? For sure. Um, I'm an internationalist. I start the book with a quote from my favorite Greco-Roman historian Polybius. And Polybius is writing at the end of the second century and first century BC, looking back, how is it that Rome, which had mostly been confined to the Italian peninsula, had within a 
six-decade period gone to dominate the known world, as Polybius saw it. And he says, all of a sudden, the affairs of Libya and the world have become one. And there is no history just in Asia Minor or North Africa. All events are happening simultaneously everywhere. And of course, it's funny that he's writing this 25 centuries ago. But my argument now is that whether it's tax havens or climate change or even crises like Libya and Ukraine, these are truly global issues. And many people, particularly in the policymaking sphere, say, well, yeah, of course, there is a Turkish Emirati competition over Libya and there's a Russian-American competition over Ukraine, but they're not global issues because, you know, they're regional and it's the regional powers that predominate. And I would say no. Their collective active, excuse me, their collective action challenges. And I define this in the book as a very important theoretical thing that we historians of American and British empire and American and British imperial systems don't think about enough. When you have a hegemon, the hegemon sorts out the allies. Yes, like with the Iraq war, the French or Germans can sit it out but they couldn't actively undermine the NATO alliance from within it. That's not how things are now. We have an alliance, but Italy and France are on opposite sides of the 2019-2020 war for Tripoli. And the idea that two main European NATO EU powers would be on opposite sides of a hot civil war, this is new. And this has to do with the collective action problem that in sorting out the post-Qaddafi reconstruction, major Western players were on opposite sides. And this is an indication that we are in this global enduring disorder and everything is about collective action. And it's not about regional systems anymore. Libya is a global problem, and the failure we have in Libya is a failure of the global international system, just as much as climate change is in a failure a failure to make effective collective action, or the ability to crack down on tax havens, which then lead to huge amounts of disorder, because the global taxation system we have promotes flows of hot money and also incentivizes people in places like Russia and China to promote disorder, blah, 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 that this idea of collective action is really at the core of almost every geopolitical problem we have today. You basically use Libya as a fulcrum of the global enduring disorder, or as a case study, if you wish. Yes. Uh, The question is, is Libya unique, or could you have just as well used Syria, Yemen, Ukraine? I think the answer is both. I'm a Libyan exceptionalist, and I do think that Libya is the archetype of certain economic features, which I term as semi-sovereign institutions. But for looking at the global enduring disorder, I think Ukraine would be equally good. Um, Syria and Yemen are a little more peripheral to the international system because they don't export a lot of hot money. Syria and Yemen are not wealthy countries, and they're not as entangled with the global Fortune 500s for obvious reasons. But Ukraine is, and Ukraine has its important uh, gas transit revenues that lead to similar semi-sovereign institutions that Libya has. And why are these semi-sovereign institutions so important to understanding the global enduring disorder. And this is because Libya contains within it, as does Ukraine, a microcosm of all of the key dysfunctions, migration, jihadis, hot money, um, distorted economic prices, whereby billions of dollars of capital are in semi-sovereign, semi-capitalist entities, which don't actually try to turn a profit, but try to protect market niches that then lead to the concept I term neo-mercantilism and the psychology of neo-mercantilist actors, which is incumbent psychology. So, uh, yeah, I don't think Libya is unique in terms of its relationship to the global system, nor its microcosm of being a kind of way we can do a case study of the global enduring disorder. You've... uh touched on this already, but I in some ways would like you to, to expand on your, your... So in the book, you give a detailed description of developments in Libya 
and you basically say the la- it's a lack of coordinated uh, collective action, a lack of perseverance, and a failure to tackle root causes. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Sure. So this book is structured in a different way from most uh, trade or academic or crossover books in that I give personal anecdotes, then I extrapolate concepts, and I back up those concepts with extended excerpts of previous think tank scholarship. And, you know, this may sound clunky to various readers, but I think that it works and it allows the reader to also dip in and out. If you're really interested in the jihadi section, you go right to my Atlantic Council paper and you read about how jihadis in Libya derive from various networks, both in Darna in Libya, and then Libyans who went to Syria to fight against the Assad regime and came back. So if you're interested in that, you get that. But if you're interested in just the big picture, you read the narrative glosses. So your question Please rephrase it for me again. I I lost it there a second, James. You've touched on this uh, already in what you've said. Uh, But a recurring theme in your detailed description of developments in Libya is the lack of coordinated collective action, a lack of perseverance, and the failure to tackle root causes. Can you expand on that a bit? Oh, yes. That hits the nail on the head. Because of the unique structure that I mentioned now, in the narrative portions of the book, I tell my discovery of the topic. So... A narrative element that showcases this is I was in Libya in 2012-13, and I had a meeting with the then EU ambassador to Libya. And the EU has an ambassador who is not the ambassador of any of the countries, because as you know, the EU has its own policies, which is different than the policy of France or Spain or Sweden. And I'm meeting this person in Palm City at her house slash office because the security situation is such that she wasn't going into the embassy. And she asked me, you know, who should I be meeting with in Misrata? And I explained, well, Misrata is really important. You've got to be meeting X and Y and Z. And she writes down the name Abdurrahman Aswehli. And I'm like, really? He's like the number three or four most important politician in the country. Why is she writing this name down? And then later in the conversation, she says, do you have his WhatsApp number? And I'm like, no. I mean, I have it, but don't you have people who can get that for you? I mean, can't you just ask the British? And she said, oh, we can't ask the British. You know, we don't have like that great relations with them. And I'm thinking, oh, Euroscepticism, whatever. But you can ask the French or Italian. She's like, no, 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 no. They wouldn't share that kind of detailed intelligence with us. (laughs) And then this points out to me, oh my God, the EU ambassador doesn't get intelligence from the main embassies which comprise the EU. How can the EU ambassador know anything? Because the EU doesn't have its own intelligence or research institutions the way the member states do. So it's a collective action conundrum. Then when I would talk to the British, they would be like, well, you know, we have our own interlocutors. In Misrata, we really like working with Fatih Bashaga. We don't want the French to get an inroads with him. You're like, really? The French and British might have slightly different priorities, but if Fatih Bashaga is an important mediator between the Misratan moderates and the hardliners who are more Islamists, Don't the French and British and Americans all need to work together with the same Libyan interlocutors? But no, the answer is that because we live in this global enduring disorder, these relationships play out differently than they would have in the early post-Cold War period, whereby the failures that were made in places like Iraq and Afghanistan were American-led failures. Yes, the British may have made their own dysfunctions in Helmand province or in Basra, but they were at the behest of the Americans or to carry favor with the American military. And in fact, it's been unpicked that a lot of the decisions in Helmand and Basra by the British were attempting to be overzealous to Pentagon desires. 
That's not what I'm talking about here. We're in a different period. The Americans or the UN or the EU were not running the show in Libya. It was a free-for-all where the British have their own interlocutors defending certain interests. And then the Italians are really concerned about migration. And the French are working more about counter-terror in the Fezzan, which is the southwestern part of Libya. And there was very little to no coordination, or there were deliberate attempts to undermine the coordination because each actor wanted to be the top mediator. And this is what I term dominating the Libya file. In other words, even if the French, British, and Italians have 98% the same interests in Libya, and even if they're willing to coordinate about 80% of those interests, each one wants to dominate the Libya file, particularly in Europe. And therefore, it's like, well, if the Italians had the Palermo conference, we need to have a Paris conference and show that North Africa is a French sphere of influence and we're the dominating coordinating power. And then the Russians are like, well, we can have our ally in Haftar on our uh, aircraft carrier, but we can also have Siraj, even though he's a rival to us, we can have him to Moscow to show that we're the coordinating power. And you can just see by the stories of looking at Libya, how this kind of coordination complexity plays out. The example of the EU ambassador is is a good uh, uh, portrayal or painting, if you wish, of the bureaucratic infighting within national bureaucracies that you describe in your book, as well as between allies such as the United States or France and Italy, uh, as it, and as all of this affects Libya. This is the kind of infighting that has been a continuous fact of life that existed long before the dawn of your enduring dis of your global enduring disorder. So what makes it now different or more significant than it has been in the past? Of course, global politics has always been characterized by a degree of order and a degree of disorder. There was never a period of order and then a period of complete disorder. It's a question of degree. You have to keep in mind that when the Americans and British were on the same side in World War II, of course, the Americans were trying to push the British out of empire and were undermining them with the Atlantic Charter for the post-Cold War world order. And even as America was the dominant power in the early post-Cold War years, there was infighting between the Pentagon and the State Department who had different plans for the Iraq misadventure. So what's different now? I think what's different now is the extent to which major players don't want to order their own sphere. In the Soviet times, there was no part of the world that the Kremlin considered unimportant enough to order. If they could have ordered Equatorial Guinea, they would have done it. They would try to have you know, Marxist communism and Leninism and Stalinism set up there, and they would teach it, and they would bring Equatorial Guineans back to study in Moscow. That's not the way Putin looks at things. Putin is happy to disorder the parts of the world in which Russia is powerful. He wants Ukraine to be weak and disordered. He doesn't look at it the way that uh, Khrushchev would have looked at Ukraine. And they would rather deny it to the West these days rather than order it as a part of their coherent world system. And this is true with the Chinese. They're very happy to have North Korea be entirely disordered, so long as it's dysfunctional and not a part of the Western orbit. So I think there are various factors here that are also enhanced by globalization. We have a multiplicity of actors now. Um, as you know, anyone can create news. Anyone pretty much can do oil and gas deals. It used to be that American technology, even the American miners like Marathon and Hess were light years ahead of other countries' oil and gas capabilities but it's not the case anymore. E&I and Total are as technically advanced as ConocoPhillips. In some cases, they're more advanced. And then even Sinopac in China can do oil and gas deals in a ways that Western majors can do. And that's quite different. Then also the amount of global capital. It used to be that first London in its imperial heyday, and then you know New York slash the U.S. had just so much more capital sloshing around that when you needed a capital-intensive thing, 
you couldn't go to the Chinese to solve your capital intensive problem. Well, that's not the case anymore. It's not just the Chinese and Japanese and Russians. There are private individuals who have billions of dollars of capital that can be deployed, which can swing geopolitical conflicts, but can also provide the seed capital to do the oil field services transaction that you need. We have a multiplicity of power centers like has never before existed in human history. And we have complexity of challenges like tax havens and climate change in a way that we never could have had in the British imperial heyday. Capital was far more concentrated and it was a lot easier to understand how it was working. So when the British needed to do certain kind of taxation, well, they had the gold standard. The world operated on the gold standard and and the ability of the, the Bank of England to control the money supply and to affect things. There is no one power, not the Federal Reserve Bank, not Goldman Sachs. We live in this multipolar, more disordered world. And that's how I would push back against people who say, oh, well, there's always been degrees of disorder. And I'm like, yes, that's of course true. And there are degrees of order now. And the UN does do some things well. And the US and NATO still do certain things that order the world. But relatively, the forces of multipolar, you know, contributions and the forces of disorder have more power than they've ever had in human history. Uh, You focus in the book on two phone calls, one between President Donald Trump and Libyan leader, rebel leader, uh, Khalifa Haftar, and another between Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. And you use them as examples of the United States keeping its options open and deliberately sowing discord. Can you... uh, uh, explain a little bit more how they did how how they did that and how they sowed more discord. Sure. Well, the July twenty fifth, twenty nineteen phone call is a little bit more famous than the April fifteenth, twenty nineteen phone call to Haftar. But watching these phone calls be leaked and then investigated shows me what happens when a player comes into the most powerful position in the world, which is still president of the United States. And he acts differently than any other president in American history by trying to disorder his own institutions. And we need to step back here because a lot of non-Americans don't understand how American foreign policy is made and how it's different than European countries. In, In America, the head of the executive branch appoints his own officials, his own friends to head things like the EPA, the Bureau of Energy, and the State Department. So whether it's Rex Tillerson or Pompeo, Trump appointed that person. And hence, if W. Bush wanted to have a certain policy, he had appointed Condoleezza Rice or Colin Powell, and they can make that policy happen for him. Trump did something different. He appointed Rex Tillerson, but then he did shadow policy anyway and undermined the State Department, even though it was run by the very person he had appointed. So I bring this idea of shadow policy into the book because it's very weird for the leader of a democratic country who can appoint the head of an institution to undermine exactly that institution. But this is what was happening. Trump was constantly dumping on the State Department and using Jared Kushner to have side deals with the Emiratis and Saudis to undermine the official policy towards Libya, even though Tillerson or Pompeo were conducting the policy that Trump asked them to do. And this is what's going on with these phone calls. We had an official State Department policy towards Ukraine or towards Libya, which recognized the official governments. But then we had shadow policy, to some extent conducted out of the White House, which was the opposite. And let's deal with the Zelensky phone call first, because it's more famous and and listeners will understand it more. So we were giving money officially to Ukraine to help them against the Russians who had invaded and annexed Crimea 
and had invaded and been waging a low-intensity conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk, where they had set up semi-autonomous republics. And yes, Ukraine is the cockpit of world history, as Mackinder told us in 1904, and it's the geostrategically most important piece on the chessboard, and it pretty much always will be. Therefore, we can't let Putin conquer it. NATO and our allies were giving training and lots of advanced weapon systems to Ukraine, both under Poroshenko and under Zelensky. It is therefore surprising that Trump decided to have a phone call in which he threatened Vladimir Zelensky with cutting off that funding and that military support if he didn't produce the dirt on Biden and the Burisma affair about Biden's son, Hunter. Because this is undermining official State Department policy. It's not just using the office of the presidency for personal benefit, as many people have claimed, and it is that. But more importantly, it's an institutional cluster because it's using the White House and potentially Trump speaking in a private capacity, not even in his capacity as president, to undermine his own State Department and Pentagon officials who he appointed. That is a kind of enduring disorder where our allies have no idea what our policy is. And you have every right, if you're Vladimir Zelensky, to say, is Trump speaking in his private capacity, threatening me as a mob boss? Or is he saying that the policy of the United States government has changed? Or is he saying that the White House and the State Department don't have the same policy? And that's exactly the same as what happened with the Haftar phone call on April 15th of the same year, 2019. At the behest likely of Abdurrahman, of, of Abdul Fattah Sisi in Egypt, Trump, who doesn't care much about the Libya issue, but was willing to outsource it to the Egyptians and Emiratis and Saudis for political favors, called the rogue general Khalifa Haftar two weeks after he launched his sneak attack on Tripoli, undermining the UN National Conference process. And in this phone call, which was set up at the behest of Sisi, probably also the offices of then National Security Advisor Bolton, bizarrely, Trump talked for more than 10 minutes with the rogue general, Haftar, about real estate deals in Virginia. He gave him advice about beachfront properties. Then he's like, oh, why don't we work together on counter-terror initiatives. Well, this is very bizarre because Haftar is not a part of the Libyan state and is a rogue general attacking the Libyan state that we recognize, we, the U.S. and U.N., recognize as the legitimate government. This would be as weird as calling up bin Laden and say, why don't we work with bin Laden about counter-terror initiatives when we're allies with the Saudis who he is fighting against them? It makes absolutely no sense. And then when that phone call was deliberately leaked four days later, people started flipping out and saying, oh, I guess U.S. policy is to support Haftar. And I said, no, 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 of course it isn't. Trump is too lazy to fire Tillerson or Pompeo or to have Bolton change the policy of the U.S. government. He's just trying to strew confusion. The policy of the U.S. government is the same. Yael Lempert at State set that policy a long time ago. And, you know, we recognize the GNA and we're going to work with Siraj and we work with the U.S. I mean, we work with the U.K. and U.N. on these issues. But Trump was deliberately having a shadow policy undermining the very institutions that he had appointed the heads of. And this is just, a, these two phone calls are great microcosms of the enduring disorder because you have a guy at the White House and you also had one at number 10 later, Boris Johnson, who were undermining the very institutions that they had appointed the heads of. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It sort of becomes a self-perpetuating, self-fulfilling loop. Uh, crises like Libya, Syria, or the Ukraine don't get resolved. That in turn serves fueling the global enduring disorder by, among other things, accelerating migration, polarization, the very food st- feedstock of populists. That's my exact argument in the text. I see positive and negative feedback loops where classical IR theorists, both in the realist and constructivist schools, see a balance of power. And if you push your finger on the side of disorder, order pops up. So the argument on the European continent from the Napoleonic Wars until the end of World War II was if one power got too strong, say a rising Germany, lots of other countries would band together and particularly the British would get more involved on the continent to to counterbalance it. Um, I see another kind of feedback loop operating now, which is that as the world gets more disordered in places like Syria and Libya, it emit, those places emit more migrants and more jihadis and more arms proliferation, which leads to the rise of the neo-populist right in Europe, who more disorder the world, which then creates more global hotspots. And then people get more afraid of terrorism and they want to have fewer migrants. And it's, it's a negative feedback loop. And we really have seen this with Trump. I don't think there could have been the rise to power of Trump if Ambassador Stevens, my good friend, was not killed on September 12th, 2012, because only neo-populists like him or uh, Congressman Jordan or Senator Crowley would be willing to stir up so much chaos and blame it on Hillary and have their fans chant, lock her up lock her up and say that somehow email gate meant that Hillary was responsible for the the death of the ambassador, which is crazy, of course. Um, And other factors that have been going on in the world system, like, you know, the fear of the loss of jobs to Mexican migrants, this is not something that the Jeb Bush and Romneys could mobilize in such a racist way, you know, saying that Mexican migrants are criminal rapists who are coming to steal your jobs. That's not something that Romney or Bush uh, Jeb would utter. So these disordered world situations have this negative feedback loop because they lead to political decision makers coming into power like Boris and Trump, as well as Erdogan, Putin and Bolsonaro and Orban who then don't try to solve problems. They try to reinforce the very problems that they got into office claiming to solve. And this is the populist paradox that we've always had. And I think neo-populists are a little bit different than classic populists because classic populists, the Mussolini and Hitlers, have solutions. They may be very ugly solutions like kill the Jews or conquer Ethiopia and you know, have a second or third Roman empire, not something that we would like, but they're solutions. But neo-populists have no intellectual capital. They haven't written the Mein Kampfs and they have no real policies. They just want the crisis to continue long enough that they can get elected for the next cycle. So the crisis can continue long enough. And I think if we understand Trump and Johnson in this way, it really explains a lot about how Brexit and Trumpian policy work. They don't really provide any solutions for, you know, the left behind white working class people that they appeal to. They only prolong the crisis so that they might vote for them at the next election. It strikes me that we may be do- dealing with two phenomena rather than just one, which lo- leads to the global enduring disorder. So on the one hand, you have those who are interested in disorder, for example, Donald Trump or populist, neo-populists in the West. But then you have the Russian and Chinese presidents, Putin and Xi Jinping, who on the one hand still think in terms of the absoluteness of the nation state as the organizing principle of an international order, but at the same time define their states 
increasingly not as nation states, but as civilizational states, which have shift both internal and internationally shifting borders, which in and of itself creates disorder. Wow, um, that is very interesting. Yes, Putin and Xi have a lot more intellectual capital behind their ideas than Boris and Trump, no doubt about that. And they do appeal to things like the Ruski Mir, which I talk about in chapter three on disinformation. And yes, they have a greater vision. I think that they do want to disorder the world, though, in similar ways, because they think that they're more likely to thrive in a disordered world. The Chinese response to the pandemic, to conceal it initially, and then not to share a lot of their information about how they had it under wraps, is because they're going to benefit from a situation in which the West is uh, disordered and our economies were thrown into chaos. Um, There is no doubt that when Russian information operatives work on a place like Georgia or Ukraine or the U.S. election, they're not so concerned about who wins or loses, but they're concerned that the faith of those populaces in democracy and in news outlets and in you know, just civil society organizations is called into question. And therefore, the fissures that we've seen between black and white, uh, between rural and urban, these are exactly these fissures that the Russians would love us to have in our society, because they're not so much concerned with outcomes as with the weakening of our institutions. And in the book, I say that if you look at a place like Libya, you see what happens when there are no functioning governance institutions you have this question of not dealing with root causes. And I kind of dodged that earlier when you mentioned it, just because it was such a complicated one. But I'm happy to to share why I think the West doesn't deal with root causes. Well, let's do that uh, connected to another idea that, uh, that you've postulated in the book, which is essentially the only way of resolving the enduring global disorder is the construction of a new world order. And you say that can only be done uh, or requires uh, uh, grassroots pressure. And perhaps you can you know, look at, te- connect your, your uh, the response on the issue of the root causes to how, you, how do you see that grassroots pressure effectively being deployed? Sure, you're right. Those questions are, are interlinked. Back to root causes... When you have the four-year election cycle or the quarterly earnings report, it's really difficult to deal with root causes because you have the electorate or your shareholders screaming for results. But the British and American imperial systems worked because they had a lot of consensus at the top. If you look from Palmerston all the way to Churchill, there really wasn't much of a difference between Tory and liberal foreign policy towards the empire. Even Attlee wouldn't have had so much of a difference. You know, you want to keep the British position strong and the pink areas of the map there and benefit from the imperial system to keep London as a global financial center for our manufacturers to go out and for capital to come in. Then all of a sudden, as Britain you know, is on its decline, you have different policies between labor and the Tories towards empire. This is what we've seen in America. Eisenhower and Nixon and JFK, pretty much the same policies towards the Soviet Union. But as we're in our decline phase, Obama, as opposed to W, as opposed to Trump, as opposed to Biden, wow, we're getting divergent foreign policies. Whereas George Washington had warned us that politics is supposed to end at the water's edge. But in declining empires, when people are fighting over a decreasing amount of spoils, this is a natural phenomenon. It was happening in the late third empire in France. Of course, in the heyday of French empire, there was consensus But then when Léon Blum and the Front Populaire come into power in 1936, the right wing says, no, let's withdraw capital and take it out of France and let's undermine because 
the Blum Violet bill is going to hurt our position in Algeria, and they have a different vision. So let's scuttle it. And that's where we are now. Dems and Republicans are scuttling their different policies abroad. And in that situation, you can't deal with root causes. So if we know that the root cause of jihadism is ungoverned spaces, you don't need to just kick ISIS out of Mosul. You need to build governance in Iraq. But it doesn't matter if it's Obama or Trump. They want the political win and the two-year or four-year window of we kicked ISIS out and then a kind of victory parade thing. Are they wanting to do the tough work of having USAID actually change the way that it works and do the difficult nation and state building in Mosul or in northeastern Syria? No, they're not up for that task. So in Libya, Obama went in hard on bombing CERT as soon as the GNA was stood up in 2016. And they did a great job of having embedded advisors with the Banyan El Marsus, which are a collection of Misratan anti-jihadi militias. It was not that much covered in the Western press, but it was very successful. And yeah, the Libyans did the fighting on the ground, but it never could have happened without the American sorties and reconnaissance efforts. But did we think long-term here? Did we have a siege of CERT by sea and have an envelopment movement to the south of CERT so that the fighters couldn't flee just to Wadan and Hoon and then reconstitute themselves in the desert? No. It was, let's get the optic of getting ISIS out of CERT, declare mission accomplished, and get out of there. When this was a huge opportunity to deal with the root cause of, of uh, you know, ungoverned space, because Libya, since the fall of Qaddafi, has been an ungoverned space problem. It's not a jihadi problem. The root cause is ungoverned space. You know, Libyans are not traditionally attracted to Salafi jihadi ideas. And it's not something that um, is indigenous to Libya. It comes from various foreign preachers. Even Madkhali Salafism obviously comes from abroad. The Madkhalis follow uh, a Saudi preacher. And it doesn't work very well with Libyan forms of Islam. But we had the ability to deal with this ungoverned space and radicalization problem, and we didn't. Obama just didn't want to be seen as being involved. And when it comes to these root causes, our Western allies don't either. They're like, oh, my God, Libya is too difficult. My electorate is not interested in dealing with this reconstruction phase. So whether it was Cameron or Obama or Sarkozy, they wanted the boom, boom, one and done approach because they didn't want to be seen as doing another Iraq style, heavy handed nation building exercise. And Therefore, root causes were completely ignored. And this is the case not only with the ungoverned space thing, but with how we approach a lot of economic issues. So my kind of real niche expertise is the Libyan economy. And that's what I talk about in chapters four and five of the book. And I've invented the term semi-sovereign institutions to describe how the National Oil Corporation or the Housing and Infrastructure Board or my favorite, the Office of Development of Administrative Centers, work in Libya because they're not controllable by the prime minister and they don't answer to, say, the minister of economy or the minister of housing. And when we come to unpick what's going on in Libya, it's very clear that the mess of these various semi-sovereign institutions, each pulling in their own way and creating corruption niches, is the problem. We could be trying to reform the Libyan economy, but that's too difficult. So Western foreign policymakers are like, no, 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 let's have a peace conference. Let's have the UN mediate elections. Let's, um, you know, make sure that there's peace between East and West. Well, the only reason that there are militias in Libya is because it pays to be in a militia. Once you're in a militia, you can smuggle petrol and refined petrol is subsidized because of the way that the semi-sovereign institutions work. And it's very lucrative to be in a militia. Um, we don't deal with root causes. And this has to do with the West really not engaging and not being willing to deal with hard problems the way that British Empire or even American Empire in the early Cold War period would have gotten into the thick of it and said, this is a 20 or 30 year problem. We're going to invest the political capital to go after root causes. Uh, I want to stick with the militias for a second, but also with, with the economic issues. Because you, you actually make quite a stunning statement in the book 
uh, and you you accurately describe how the Libyan militias squander Libya's wealth and uh, uh, and its oil wealth particularly. But then you go on to say that it has deprived or that they are depriving Libya of its oil of an oil rich future. And I wonder what you and you say that they do that by appeasement. I wonder whether you can explain what you mean by uh, appeasement and why the consequences uh, of what the militias are doing is so much more significant than simply financial loss and delayed development. So, yes, the, the Libyan militias have denied Libyans their future as a wealthy oil state with a lot of human capital. Some people would argue Libya never could have been Kuwait at the center of the Mediterranean, but I think they're wrong. It could have. There's not only enough oil wealth per capita, but Libya has the tradition of, you know, high literacy and low population density and uh, trade linkages that done correctly post Gaddafi, you could have gotten to that Kuwait on the Mediterranean vibe. But it's too late now, because for that to have happened, Libya needed to be exporting during the peak oil price years. But actually, during those years, the militias, particularly the federalist ones and their warlord, Ibrahim Jadran, from 2014 to 2016, largely shut off all of Libyan oil, but particularly in the east. And people will cite the $120 billion that was lost to Libya as a result of those blockades. But it's much worse than that, because had that money gone in, then oil pipelines could have been upgraded and the terminals could have been repaired. And you then could be producing a lot more at the basal level and more foreign students could have studied abroad. So the militias have lost a whole future for Libya. And it gets worse because when you talk to real experts in the oil industry, the kind of way in which oil is produced is probably only going to last until like 2030 or 2032. So we have seven to 11 years max of the way that crude is exported. If it remains as it is in Libya, which is that, you know, a basal amount of crude between 0.8 and 1.2 million barrels are produced per day, but then you can't get investments in on the pipelines or the solarification of the energy grid, then as this energy transition is happening, those investments have not really taken place. And as the energy transition happens and Algeria becomes, you know, a solarified crude producer and they're producing low carbon barrels that are attractive to Europe. And then a lot of that solarification has happened. So glass flaring is not happening and carbon capture is in play. And then the electricity needed to pump those barrels is is being generated through solar. And then the Algerian grid is connected to the European grid. So both natural gas and solar are creating electricity, which is exported to Europe. Then Algeria gets to continue as a low carbon crude producer. But if Libya doesn't have these investments between now and say the late 2020s, early 2030s at the max, it's too late. It's game over. The Libyans have lost their future because then it's not economical to make those investments, no matter how peaceful Libya becomes. You just can't invest in the connection of the, the Libyan electricity grid to solar or the solarification or decarbonization of the way crude is, is done. You've got to get that carbon capture investment in right now. So the appeasement of militias has lost the Libyan future. Yes, they probably wasted two or three billion on subsidizing petrol and paying off this group. But the amount that has already been lost to the Libyan economy is at least a trillion. And for listeners who don't know how much a trillion is, because numbers are bandied about, a trillion is the gross national product of Spain per year or of Russia for a year. A trillion is a lot of money. And it goes a long way in a country of six million like Libya. So we've already lost a trillion in the first post-Qaddafi decade by making the wrong decisions to appease militias and subsidize petrol and subsidize electricity when Libya had this tremendous potential, which is now essentially a lost future. You uh, 
perhaps in a twist of irony, argue that Western democracies and conflict or post-conflict zones are the only two areas in which there is unfettered freedom of expression on social media, or what you describe as a free-for-all. Tell us what the consequences of that is and what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people take for granted that cyberspace is just unregulated. You know, oh, it's the internet. You can post any nude picture or say any crazy political opinion that you want. It didn't have to be that way. I think that radio could have been the model here. We have uh, the FCC, which regulates our radio. Yes, you can buy a radio station, but you can't preach neo-Nazi hatred on your terrestrial radio station. Yes, when radio came into power, regimes, particularly Mussolini and Hitler, found out a way to have a new kind of rhetoric that was suited towards radio. And then when radio first came to the Arab world, it led to the rise of, of Arab nationalism and Nasser because they figured out the new media and different political ideologies came to match the medium to the message. What's interesting is that the internet is not inherently free. And in most of the authoritarian world, you can't really use the internet to criticize Putin or the Saudi regime very effectively. You can't launch a new political party through the internet in Saudi or Russia in a very effective way. You can in post-conflict zones like Libya or Yemen. Yes, there's a problem that there are a lot of power outages and not everyone has enough money for good internet access. But in Libya, they have pretty good internet access because it's not a poor country and there's a lot of mobile penetration. So then Libya is more similar to the US or France where you can have, you know, gilets jaunes protests or tea party using the internet to mobilize or BLM to have, you know, just any old ideology organizing or white nationalist movements using the internet to create a political movement. That can happen in Libya where there are lots of misinformation campaigns, some funded and done by Russia and Saudi and some that are authentic to, you know, Libya saying this and that about Haftar or about Bashaga or about Siraj. Because the internet is entirely unfettered in those spaces and and we don't even work with our allied governments to try to regulate it. There's a very bizarre kind of American libertarian free speech aspect to how the internet has evolved. And that's why all these companies just steal your data and the, they're not interested in you as a consumer of their products. They're interested in giving you free stuff to have access to your data and your persona, which they then market and sell. Um, so you need to really get to understand how the free-for-all of the internet is itself a causative factor of the global enduring disorder. Uh, finally, uh, you talk about your experience as director of the U.S. Libyan Business Association as eye-opening. What did it open you to? What did it make you realize? What, it is, what is it that you saw? Wow. It was one of the most eye-opening and traumatic experiences of my life. And it took a lot of gumption and courage for me to relive it in the book. One, because there might be blowback against me personally. And two, because Fortune 500 companies are the ones who, you know, pay for your consulting products. And uh, it's difficult to go against them and have a career, right? So... I naively believed in a very Adam Smithian understanding of the global economy before this experience, James. I thought it's good that we have big Fortune 500 companies speaking to State Department and hosting Libyan officials because they're the ones who know how the Libyan economy needs to be reformed so they can, you know, sell Motorola cell phones in Libya or sell Merck Pharma or grow ConocoPhillips's uh, relation with the Waha Consortium to produce more barrels because the more money they make, the better it is for the Libyan people. 
And that is, of course, 100% true. For Conoco to succeed in Libya, they need a Libyan state that is stable, that can accept investment from foreign players, and can have enough security to repair the pipeline. It therefore seemed a reasonable assumption that the way that USLBA, the US-Libya Business Association, would function would be to promote the reforming of the Libyan economy and more US engagement to, you know, fix both the stability and economic dysfunction aspects of Libya. But in being executive director, I learned that it wasn't like that at all. The companies are happy to have the WhatsApp number of the person who's in charge. They don't care at all about reform. And I tell the story in the book of when I got Prime Minister Siraj, when I hosted him for dinner on the margins of the UN General Assembly in September 2017, to invite me personally to conduct a trade mission to Libya through USLBA. And the board members of USLBA, working largely behind my back, managed to block the trade mission from happening. This is so paradoxical that I never even considered it. Why would the heads of the largest Fargin 500 companies working in Libya not want a trade mission to Libya where they could sort out their back payment issues and maybe try to you know, meet the stakeholders to get more investment into the oil and gas sector? It's pretty paradoxical, but the reason is they don't want new players. Most of these companies that are involved in Libya, particularly in the US, have been there since the Qaddafi period, some of them even in the Senussi period. A trade mission opens up the space, and then there'll be more companies there, and they have to invest more political capital. They're happy just with the incumbent thought. And the incumbents think, ah, we got a reasonable deal. Yes, we may not get paid on time. Yes, we may not be producing as many barrels of oil as we could be. But, you know, we do our lifting every three weeks, and we get paid, and it's reasonably profitable. Why invest more money in the pipeline or try to take the risk to reform the Libyan economy? At least we have the WhatsApp number of the guys who make the decisions now. We can host them when they come to Washington or or to Houston. There's no reason to have our senior people go from Houston to have to meet them in Tripoli and to try to actually invest political capital to try to lobby the U.S. government to care about Libya and fix Libya. Nah, it's not worth it. And that was just so eye-opening and shocking for me because if you read the literature on how bad oil and gas companies are, it's usually corruption. And corruption is like, you know, one way or another, they keep Obiang in power in Equatorial Guinea and he gets hundreds of millions that should be going to the Equatorial Guinean people and he oppresses the Equatorial Guineans. But under that model, Exxon or Shell does that because they have a a better bottom line. Then they get to increase the amount that they're producing and make more money. I'm talking about something completely different. I'm not talking about corruption. And I just want to be clear. I don't think any of the Fortune 500s in Libya are doing any kind of corruption. In fact, they're not. The FCPA and UK bribery acts work really well. And the companies, particularly Anglo-American ones, are not corrupt. They're just not interested in growing their business. They are status quo players. We have a deal. We just stick with our deal. Why invest more to repair the pipeline or, or sell more hepatitis C vaccines? We're just concerned with getting our back payment paid. And there's no reason to do a trade mission or to help reform the Libyan economy because we have the WhatsApp number of the central bank governor and we'll get paid when we get paid. We'll just stick it out and wait. And that's the way incumbents think. And incumbent psychology connects people like Trump with people like Putin and Giuliani with their counterparts who are Ukrainian oligarchs, because these are people who are in positions of authority and they don't want to say, how can I maximize my profit? Do I want to have the best possible real estate deal or produce the most amount of natural gas possible that Rusneft or Gazprom can produce? No, they just want to stay in power. And to stay in power, it might be beneficial to not produce the maximum amount of gas. And unfortunately, what I learned is that Fortune 500 company CEOs, they want the same. 
They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want a scandal. They don't want to have to, you know, deal with the hard work of investing capital to like reform the Libyan economy. No, they want to stay in the C-suite. And that makes them into status quo actors who are not going to help us solve the enduring disorder, even though, ironically, then they could be making more money. And to conclude this rather long-winded answer, it has constantly bewildered me why major American oil and gas companies don't get into the green energy and solar space. They have all the networks. They have the best engineers. They have the transmission grid on which green energy will flow. But it's just a psychological thing. These are guys who came up through Texas A&M to their Houston firms doing things one way. And they think about it the one way they think of it. So yes, they lobby to bury climate change and say it's not an issue in climate denialism. Not that they couldn't have been making more money if they embraced climate change and got out ahead of it. Just like if we as a country had invested money through R&D in solar panels, we could be the leading player in the solar space. But the Chinese and Danish are ahead of the US in solar because as an incumbent, as the top dog, we've just tended to bury our head in the sand and say, let's just do it the old way. You know, it's fine. We'll just make our profits this way. Let's just keep our patch. And that's the neo-mercantilist aspect that I saw, you know, running USLBA and realizing that it wasn't just USLBA. It's just a tiny microcosm. Trump is supported by business leaders, not only in the coal industry, but in so many industries because they are backward looking neo-mercantile thinkers because America is top dog and they don't want to have to compete or re-innovate. Jason, time flies and we could go on for another hour, but unfortunately we're running up against the clock. Before I let you go, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about where you go from here and what your next project is. Well, it's my pleasure to do that. The one question we haven't had time for that you raised is, well, what are the solutions? I'd like to be working more on solutions. And I do think that those solutions need to be bottom up. If the people still vote for neo-populist ideas and still see America first or Italy first or Britain first as working, well, then political leaders are never going to deliver new institutions. But if the people say we need global solutions and I'm only going to vote for a globalist party that institutionalizes things, then maybe our political leaders will get there. So in trying to take my own career towards solutions, I'm very happy to say that I'm pursuing a fellowship with the NATO Defense College Foundation, where we're going to make a podcast and I'm going to run a program called NATO and the Global Enduring Disorder. Because I see NATO needing to change and reform and not being an incumbent player anymore, but, uh, you know, revolutionizing how it works so that NATO can be at the cutting edge of dealing with things like climate change and tax havens. Personally, I'm going to be doing a new book, maybe just called The Enduring Disorder, maybe The Global Enduring Disorder, which is not Libya focused. And whereby I look at all of these different problems that I'm going to tackle also in my podcast. And get to solutions. And for me, those solutions are bottom up, but they also have to do with institutionalizing issues. Libya is a great test case to deploy here because how do you institutionalize things in Libya? Well, I've already done the legwork there. I want something called an international financial commission in Libya, which has the heads of the semi-sovereign institutions willing to reform if they have technocratic oversight of how that process works and is outsourced to this International Financial Commission to create win-win solutions. I can see using Libya as a test case for looking at how we can reform the global economy. Jason, that sounds like a great project, and I wish you all the best. Thank you for being on the show and for a fascinating and insightful conversation. Best wishes and take care. My pleasure, James. Thank you so much.